This week, we're looking at Genesis 1. We're going to read verses 26 through 31 this morning. Going to do a high level flyby of these verses, especially 26, 27, and 28. Let's pray before we read God's Word together this morning. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us your living word. It is breathed out by you, and it is no dead word. That it affects and brings life where there was but death, that it enlivens life where it is struggling, that it animates our souls and feeds our minds and stirs our affections. We do pray that as your word is read and As we preach it this morning, and consider the truths of our created identity, we pray, Father, that your word would be active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray this in the strong name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. This is the holy and errant word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. So many of the struggles and so many of the challenges in our culture today have to do with the identity. Who are we? And our faith focus this year is here in January, where we're spending these weeks in January looking at something. Our faith focus this year is biblical identity. And we'll look this morning at our created identity. Next week in the morning service, we'll look at our redeemed identity. And then The following week, our sanctified identity, and finally our corporate identity. And then on Sunday evenings, we're going to drill down a little deeper, and Nick tonight will preach on identity and work. Next week, I'll preach on identity and politics, and then the week after, Dave will preach on identity and sexual ethics. 
And the elders and the staff chose to do biblical identity this year for our faith focus because there's an assault uh, that is increasing in our culture and we're seeing the effects of in the church on the Bible's understanding of identity. And so we want to look at that together and encourage one another and equip one another to live for the glory of Christ in this culture. John Calvin famously, in the beginning of the Institutes, he said that our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. That is, knowledge of God informs our understanding of ourselves, and our knowledge of ourselves informs our understanding of God. So when you and I are seeking to understand ourselves, it's a theological endeavor, We can't separate knowledge of God from understanding ourselves. And so, as we seek to understand ourselves, we turn to God's Word and what God has to say regarding humanity. What does it mean to be human? Before we start this morning, I want to make it clear, though, before we jump into this, I I can't address everything. And I won't address everything anything sufficiently in this one sermon about our created identity. I would be happy to, but was afraid you wouldn't want to be here for four hours as I kept preaching. So limiting myself. Here's the reality is that we're all touched by the doctrine of humanity and we're all passionate about what we think is an important aspect or an important emphasis in addressing the doctrine of humanity. And there are different concerns and different exceptions and different passions and different what about this, and what of this, and that's all good. I just can't address all of them. can't work out all the details this morning. I just want to give a brief, high-level flyover of these couple of verses here in Genesis 1 and what they tell us about our created identity. So we're going to do that this morning. Five points from this text this morning. First... We are created by God as dependent beings. The creation of humankind is by the hands of God. Now we might stop and say, you don't have to tell the church that. But we do. Because where we get off track about identity more than anywhere else is this. Is that we think in some way that we are independent beings. No, we are very dependent beings. God created us. He said, let us make man in our image, says the triune God in verse 26. And then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. He created us, and so we belong to him. In fact, we can't exist without him. We don't exist apart from him. Paul, when he is there in Acts 17, and he is mixing with the intellectual elites in Athens, and he goes to the Oropagus, and he sees that they have made an altar to an unknown God, quote, Paul will look at that, and he'll say, I know this God. And then he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it. That is, He made you, He made me, Paul is telling them. He made everything. 
And Paul says this is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. That is, Paul is telling them, don't you realize he is independent? God alone is independent. He needs nothing. And then he turns the tables. And Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being, that is, oh men of Athens, don't you understand? You're the ones who are dependent, dependent upon Him. We're all dependent upon Him. If the Scriptures are clear about anything, it is that humankind is presented time and again as destitute apart from God. We're not isolated beings, though we may try to act like it. We cannot, and we will not exist apart from Him. And we cannot and we will not exist well apart from communion with Him. And everyone knows this. There there is a void within us as a result of the fall in Genesis 3 that people are constantly seeking after something to, to fill that void because of what was lost, communion with God. As Augustine famously said, he said, Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you, O God. And the first part of that sentence is maybe the greatest objective fact in all of human life, that our heart is restless apart from God. And the second part of that sentence is arguably the greatest subjective fact in all of life. Our heart finds rest in you, O Lord. And anybody who does not know Christ, if they are honest, they, have, they would say with the first part, yes, there is a restlessness about me. I find that there's a void. There's something I'm seeking after. And every Christian who has come to know Christ would say on the subjective side, I know this rest of which Augustine speaks of. Because we were created by Him. And we were created for Him. There's an old black spiritual that sings about the loneliness experienced by the soul apart from God. And the words are, it's not my father, it's not my mother, it's not my brother, it's me, O Lord, standing in need of prayer. It's me. We sing a song here that echoes that same thing. I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour. Need thee every hour, O blessed Lord. No matter what our culture says, no matter what our flesh asserts, no matter how far we run, every single one of us was created dependent upon God and are created for God. Second, we are created in God's image. Out of all of creation, humankind alone occupies a position like nothing else. Not like a tree, not like a bush, not like the moon in the sky, not like the suns and all of their radiant glory, not even like the angels and the archangels. We surpass them all. Mankind, humankind is the great apex of creation where we alone are created in the very image of God. Let us make man in our image 
after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, the imago Dei. What does that mean? Well, I think at the very outset we have to say that you, you can't be dogmatic about what it means to be created in the image of God. Because Genesis here, or other passages that speak of the image of God in us, doesn't give strict details about these are all the things that it is. I think it is true, as we confess from the larger catechism this morning, that part of the Imago Dei, part of us being created in the image of God, is that we have knowledge and righteousness and holiness. Surely it is also the fact that we are created communal by nature and that we have the desire and even the need for community. Surely it is as well the fact that you and I are created as eternal beings to exist forever, but I don't think we can be dogmatic about everything that it entails. There's been a lot of debate over the centuries about what it means that God's image is Reflected in man. What I want to do this morning is just approach it in two ways for our purposes. First, in the New Testament we see that the image of God in man is restored as he or she comes to faith in Christ. Something has been lost about our persons as the image of God because of the, uh, because of the fall. So Paul, for instance, will speak about This in Ephesians 4, when he says that the old man is put away and the new has come. He says we are putting on the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's where the catechism is getting that from. In Colossians 3, he speaks about Christians having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That is, as we come to know Christ, and Christ then indwells us, there is a renewal that happens of the image of God within us. Which speaks of the fact that there must be in some way the image of God is marred in us as a result of the fall. And in other ways I believe it is obliterated in us as a result of the fall. But as we are united to Christ, there is a restoration that happens so that when Paul says in Romans 8.29, we are being conformed to the image of the Son. So we want to be very clear in saying that in some sense the image of God is marred in man and in other respects it is utterly destroyed as a result of the fall. And that has incredible implications. That means that there is a desperate need for restoration of the image of God in everyone. It means you can't just be a humanist. You can't just value people for being people and be content with that. It means that we have to be concerned about evangelism. Because they can't fulfill the purpose for which they were created fully without the image of God being restored in them. And so it's an act of love that we share the faith with others. And yet, we also must be clear that all people still bear the image of God in some respects. As Burkhauer once stated, he said, Man is still man, just as the prodigal son, alienated from the glory of his father's house, is still son, even when sojourning in the land of sin. 
And we see evidence of that throughout the Scriptures. For example, in Genesis 9, which is way after Genesis 3, God says this, After the fall, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. You can't take the life of another man because he's in the image of God. And so the image of God in some sense is is in every person. And this has incredible ramifications. This means that all human life matters. Because all are still image bearers. This is why euthanasia should shock us. That the aged person in the image of God is put to death because they're no longer worthy to live. Sexism should be considered detestable because both male and female are in the image of God. Racism should offend because hatred over skin color makes a mockery of the image of God. When an actress rejoices in the fact that she aborted a child so that she can hold a gold statue over her head, it should horrify us. Because that child in her womb is in the image of God. I was told this week about a recent teacher's training at which sensitivity training was provided for how to treat students who consider themselves a cat or a dog or some other kind of animal. We're not talking about kindergartners. We're talking about teenagers. I've read way too much about this this week because this was news to me, but this is a growing phenomenon. It is what they call their furry identities. They consider themselves now a dog or a cat or some other kind of animal. Now, by all means, let's be sensitive and learn how to help such human beings. Notice we are to help them as human beings. This is an assault upon their person and it's an assault upon God. That people would think that it is better to identify with a beast than to identify as the very image of the eternal triune God should make us weep. We're created dependent upon God, and we are created as image bearers of God with dignity in a way that animals don't have. Third, we are created male and female by God. Male and female, He created them. And maybe no part of our created identity is under more assault today than this created male and female. These categories, they are not fluid. There are only two. Male and female. Both created in the image of God. Men formed from the dust of the ground. Woman formed from His side to be His helper. Each created by God, bearing the image of God, seeking to fulfill the will of God, but distinct, with distinct roles to play in creation. And we see this. That Adam has responsibility for her here in the garden. And she has responsibility to help him. 
It's a laboring together for the glory of God, each fulfilling their calling. It's what has been called complementarianism. That is reflected here in the garden. As Mary Cassian, an author and professor and wife and mother, stated, she said complementarianism essentially believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. That's the bottom line meaning of the word. Complementarians believe that males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship with the church in a way that females cannot, and that females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ in a way that males cannot. And then she says this, who we are as male and female is ultimately not about us. It's about testifying to the story of Jesus. We do not get to dictate What manhood and womanhood are all about, our Creator does. That's right. We were created this way. Peter will remind husbands that their wives are co-heirs with them. That is, that they are laboring together with the same eternal end in view. If you think about the garden here, and Adam and Eve, Adam had authority to rule and to subdue all the animals as well as a responsibility to keep the serpent and to guard his bride. But the serpent came and Adam didn't rule over it and nor did he protect the garden from the serpent, but he fell to its deceit and he does not provide for his wife materially and spiritually as he was supposed to. And that's why, though it is Eve that was deceived and first took of the fruit, that throughout the Scriptures it's called Adam's sin. He's responsible. He's the head of that relationship. And we see that this complementary relationship with God, created for good, immediately dissolves when sin enters in. When God approaches Adam and he says to Adam, Adam, what, what has happened here? Adam immediately begins to blame the woman. This woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. As John Piper said in commenting upon this verse, in other words, it's her fault. Or yours for giving her to me. So if somebody must die, it should be her that, that dies. And he says this, there you have the beginning of all domestic violence and all wife abuse and all rape and all sexual slurs and all the ways of belittling women whom God created in His own image. Sin corrupted what it was supposed to look like. But that does not mean that we then abandon what we were created to be. There have been major errors. There's no doubt about that in the application of God creating us as male and female. There's no doubt. But that isn't sin's corrupting influence. That's sin's corrupting influence. It's not the fault of the thing itself. We tinker with it to our destruction. Male and female coming together in marriage and complementing one another in that marriage relationship is the foundation of human society. She is formed from his side. So that she knows that she is, she is part of him. So that she is there to assist him and will give him honor. She is formed from his side so that he knows. 
He is to love her as He would love Himself because she is Himself. They serve alongside one another. And then, even before she's created, what does God do? He leads all of these beasts before Adam so that He's naming every animal. Yes, to show His dominion over them, but it's more than that. It's so that he might look upon every single living thing and say, no, not that. No, not that. No, not that. And throw up his hands and say, there's nothing here. Nothing that can be the helper I need. And then God forms her from his side. So that he treasures her. They complement one another, male and female, unlike anything else could or can. And that means it's not callous to assert two sexes and only two sexes. It's not cruel to say homosexuality does violence to what we were created to be. It's not oppressive to uphold complementarianism in the home and in the church. Can we be mean? Can we be cruel? Can we be oppressive in the way that we apply it and in the way that we communicate it? Absolutely. It just means we have to be all the more on guard. But it doesn't mean we do away with the thing itself. We don't abandon truth that is rooted in creation. Let me make just one brief comment because it often comes up and it's important. Can a single individual display what it means to be in God's image? And I wish we had more time. It could be a whole sermon series on that. But the answer is categorically yes. Absolutely. Marriage is surely an expression of being image bearers, but it is individuals who are actually God's image, not marriage. Otherwise, babies in the womb and infants and children wouldn't bear God's image. One of the ways that we bear God's image is that we were created for relationships. This is expressed in a unique way in the marriage covenant between a man and between a woman, but it is not limited to that relationship. It is highlighted in it, but it's not limited to it. In fact, marriage is only for a time, whereas we will be image bearers for all of eternity. This frees up Paul so much that he will encourage others to remain single even as he is single because of the benefit there is for the church and the kingdom. So yes, single men and women can fully shine forth the image of God and do it well, and many do it better than a lot of married people do. I had two great aunts that were dear saints. They helped raise me. They took care of me every Saturday night so my, wife, my uh, mom could have a break from the ruffian that I was. And, and they were wonderful, godly women. Never married lived together their entire lives, and I dare say impacted more lives for the kingdom than I ever will. The two of them devoted their life to teaching 
kindergarten Sunday school class in the Baptist church that they attended and did it for 40 plus years. Taught three generations of children in a Sunday school class. And if my great aunts aren't enough evidence for you, Jesus Christ was single. And he is the perfect image of God. We're created as dependent upon God. We're created as image bearers of God. We're created male and female by God. And our fourth point, we're created with purpose. We've hinted at it, but God charges Adam and Eve jointly in verse 28. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There are two parts, to fill the earth and then to rule the creation as vice regents of God. This is what has been called historically the cultural mandate. But it's more than simply cultural. I actually don't like that term, cultural mandate, because it's more than cultural. Remember, they are image bearers. They are to fill the earth with the glory of God as they reflect the very image of God throughout culture. That is the goal of all of life. Is that we might shine forth His glory, whether we eat or drink. Whatever we do, do all to the glory of God, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 10. They are being sent out, Adam and Eve. This is the first missionary text. Go out, Adam and Eve. Be fruitful. Fill the earth with all of these little image bearers that then when God looks upon the earth, He sees Himself reflected back to Himself. This is very practical. It means... That each marriage should seek to have children. All of us necessarily can or do. I stand before you as a living example. Whatever reason, we didn't and we can't. Does that mean that somehow I am less shining forth the image of God and the glory of God than the person that has five, six, ten children? No. Either by saying this or the Scriptures implying that a woman can't work outside the home in order to fulfill this mandate or have a career or that this part, because that can be part of bringing dominion by taming minds as a school teacher or enforcing laws on society by working for the state. Nor does it mean she must do all the cooking and cleaning in the home to fulfill the mandate. I do the cooking in my home. He is better with a screwdriver and I'm better with frying pans and it works. All that needs to be said because the church has not always been clear and helpful in this regard. But This is where we also must be absolutely crystal clear. The home and the family are essential. It is a necessary part of God's creative and redemptive plan, an essential, key, strategic part. And that means that the having and raising of children and the maintaining of the home shouldn't be belittled, it shouldn't be mocked, 
It shouldn't be looked down upon. Rather, it should be celebrated. Celebrated. She compliments him in procreation, having and raising their children. She is exercising dominion over the dust and over the dirt and over the weeds in the garden and over the dirty diapers and providing order. The spiritual work to the glory of God. Though it often doesn't feel like it. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, he said. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate, I think, should remind you and I of Christ sending out the disciples in those famous texts in Matthew 28 and in Acts 1 when He sends the church into the world with the Great Commission. We are to make disciples of the nations. Why? So that there might be little images, restored images of Christ scattered throughout the world so that when He looks upon the world, He sees His image reflected back to Himself. You see, we were created for the same purpose. And recreated for the same purpose. That we might shine forth His glory to Him for all of eternity. There's similarities there, but there's also differences. The cultural mandate is broader than the Great Commission. It's given to all mankind. Whereas the church is charged with the Great Commission and the church always has been more effective when it is fulfilling its charge of making disciples committed, undistracted disciples who seek to live for the glory of God in the culture. And as people change, the culture has changed. Now rightfully, someone could throw the accusation and say, well, that was the stance that the southern church took in the United States during slavery. Or that some of the churches in the south took in the 50s and 60s regarding civil rights. We won't get involved. We're supposed to be doing evangelism and discipleship. But that was a failure in discipleship. As a church... We're to be aimed at making committed, undistracted disciples. Disciples who live out their life in the world. They don't just keep their spiritual life at home and they don't just keep it to the church. It so influences their public life in the university and in civic groups and in business and in Rotary Club and in schools and on that university's campus. These are the kind of disciples of whom those accusers and acts came and dragging Jason and the disciples before and said these are the people who are turning the world upside down. How? Because they were so committed to Christ that they cannot help but influence and engage their culture and their community. This isn't pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff. The Great Awakening is an example. It changed English culture. I mentioned that a few 
weeks ago. It was disciples with lives changed who, who advocated and influenced. It led to the, the changing of child labor laws and women's rights being addressed and the slave trade ending and education being offered not just to the elite but to all. In a very real way, we have to say that the cultural mandate cannot be ultimately fulfilled apart from the Great Commission. It's the making of disciples, those with the image of God restored in them that eventually fulfills the purpose of the cultural mandate, giving God glory throughout the earth. That's how eventually that wonderful prophecy in Habakkuk 2 is come to realization when for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Fifth, and we can only mention it, if we were to look at Genesis 2, we would see that we were created as physical and spiritual beings. Not just physical, but spiritual. Not just spiritual, but physical. That is, you have a body and a soul. And so you can't neglect either. You can't neglect the soul for the sake of the body. And you can't, forsake the, you can't neglect the body for the sake of the soul. You're a psychosomatic being. You belong together, soul and body. And each has to be nurtured and taken care of. One of my pastors, I'll just close with this, one of my pastor mentors, uh, pastors, one of the pastors of the largest church in the southern state in the United States, and he tells of a prison there in his state that that prison was notorious for being the worst possible place in the state. There was a part of the prison, a, a certain block, cell block, that it was filled with drugs. It was an odd week where somebody was not stabbed or murdered in that cell block. That Gangs controlled that cell block. You always had the whites in this corner and the African Americans in that corner and the Hispanics in this corner. You had sheets, parts of the room where sheets would be let down from the top bunk of the bed, covering the bottom bunk of the bed so that illicit things could happen there on that bottom bunk. The prison gardens would only go into this cell block in full riot gear. And they were called in multiple times a week in full riot gear. And the prison system and the governor were at a place where they were throwing their hands up in the air and what, what do we do? And so they approached this pastor. They approached him and they said, could you help us? And so, they put together a team of committed, undistracted disciples 
who went into that prison block and they began to share the gospel and began to evangelize and began to lead Bible studies. I mean, this is Romans 1 country. Everything they were created to be, they have forsaken. Operating like God, they are independent from Him. Operating and forsaking the idea that they are created in the image of God, acting like beasts, killing one another, abusing their body with drugs, not recognizing that their body and soul, forsaking their manliness, that they were created as men. This is Romans 1. And this is what happens when we deny what we're created to be. He testifies that after about a year of this small group of committed, undistracted disciples going in and sharing the gospel and leading Bible studies, it is now considered the safest cell block in the entire state. They've actually begun a seminary in this cell block. And all of these inmates are going to seminary. They haven't had to call in guards in riot gear for months upon months upon months there. Sheets are no longer hanging down. Drugs can't be found. There's no weapons in this cell block. The governor has come to them and said, could you do this in other prisons in our state? This pastor talked about how one day he went to preach at, in the cell block, and there, sitting before him, were all of these inmates, and before him, he said, on the left was a larger-than-life African-American sitting on the first row, and right next to him was a larger-than-life white man with a swastika tattooed on his forehead. Sitting side by side. And he asked them afterwards, how does this, how can you do that? They said, it's the love of Christ. They had forsaken everything they were created to be. But then Christ comes to them. And recreates within them, mends what is broken in them, and restores them wholly and completely to the very image of God. And it's transforming. We need the church to be the church. This culture needs the church to be the church. Every one of these things that we've spoken about, our created identity, is under attack in this culture. And this culture needs us to stand up and say, but this is what we were created to be. It needs us because it needs this truth. It needs us to be the church here on Sunday morning, and then it needs us to be the church out there. We need to know what we were created to be, and so does everyone else that is around us.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us your word. For truly, as a result of sin and our own flesh, in this world that we live in, it would be so easy to deny the truth of your word. It's so easy to deny what we were created to be, but we are thankful that the truth of this word, the light of it shines in this darkness so that we can live as we were created to be. Dependent beings, image bearers of yours, male and female, living purposefully, accomplishing our cultural mandate and the Great Commission, and all as physical, spiritual beings seeking to reflect your glory in all that we do. May that be true of us as individuals. May that be true of us collectively. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.